presumptive heir apparent, uh, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman bin Abdulaziz bin Abdul Rahman al Saud, uh, comes here in a matter of days. Uh, you can almost even say in a matter of hours. Uh, so what will be discussed and in order of what priorities and what will be the implications of the visit itself and how will the visit on our side, their side, our joint sides be treated by the media uh, in terms of the prioritization of the issues, the needs, the concerns, the challenges, the issues, the objectives, and the key foreign policy goals of the two countries. Uh, we've been informed somewhat um, by those who have written on this in the run-up, and we're writing on this as well. Uh, I commend those to the writings of uh, David Hardaway and those of Hussein Ibish and others who have put pen to paper and shared uh, their insight, their information, their knowledge, their understanding, their empathy, their comprehension of the complexity of these issues. Um, but here we can dismiss something that is long past as an urban myth, and that is that the strategic relations between our two countries and peoples uh, date from February 14, 1945. And that was when the first ever historic unprecedented visit occurred between uh, King Abdulaziz, wrongly but humanistically referred to in the West as Ibn Saud, uh, met with then President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the USS Quincy in the great and bitter lakes of the Suez Canal. Ever since, uh, people have said, well, that was when the grand bargain and agreement and arrangement uh, was hammered out on the anvil of uh, mutuality of awareness, appreciation, and agreement. And namely, that in exchange for unfettered, unlimited uh, production and exports of Saudi Arabia's uh, hydrocarbon fuels, uh, primarily, even then with the vision two years prior to the Marshall Plan, uh, to feed and fuel the war-battered and devastated economies of the 19 Western European countries that had been laid flat on their back by Nazi uh, Germany. In exchange for um, an American pledge uh, to defend, to protect Saudi Arabia against all threats, intimidations, and, and attacks uh, on its uh, national sovereignty, its political independence, its territorial integrity. Uh, this is past uh, for gospel, not being challenged. Uh, but it is, to use a polite word, BS, in the sense that the relationship uh, became strong and humanistically anchored and oriented nearly a generation before that, certainly in the aftermath of World War I when an unknown, except for those who participated, band of Americans with the Dutch, Dutch Reformed Church of America, who were living even then in southern Iraq, in Kuwait, in Bahrain, and Oman, uh, would go to Saudi Arabia once a month 
stay there for a week and, and treat one and all uh, rulers and rule, sovereigns and subjects, rank and file and elites and everyone in between. And had the wisdom never to send an invoice. Uh, this is the beginning of the relationship. And this is what led to America rather than France or Great Britain and other would-be uh, fanciful concessionaires obtaining uh, a concession from uh, Standard Oil of, of California that led to the bonanza and a strategic economic material well-being relationship between the two uh, that has ever since been the envy of every country in the world. Uh, so let's put to rest this other frame of reference about what this relationship is all about. Not least because it's unfair, unseemly, and untrue. And it's unfair and unseemly in the sense that it posits one country, the then unbridled great power of the United States of America, uh, pledging to uh, defend uh, implicitly uh, a very weak uh, country and uh, people. Uh, and so this perhaps was a feel-good uh, connotation for the United States. But where's the empathy in this regard uh, with regard to the people of Saudi Arabia? who not only were made out to be weak and unable to fend for themselves, uh, but also reduced to an inanimate object, a thing, uh, namely oil, and a depleting substance at that. Uh, you can see why many have wanted to keep this uh, image. Um, it has served the narrow-minded interest of some who would never want to have to compete with Saudi Arabia for America's attentions and affections uh, if they could avoid it. And from that alone has been the basis of the strategic objectives of many of the kingdom's opponents and the Saudi Arabian-U.S. relationships opponents. Uh, to keep Saudi Arabia off balance to keep America and its relationship with Saudi Arabia on the defensive, on the apologetics, forever explaining, sucking up the air out of the room in an atmosphere of negativity uh, uh, versus focusing on uh, the positive sides. And this relationship, like none, is hardly bereft of blemish. It's not devoid of defect or free from flaw. Um, but you can choose to look at it as a glass half empty and leaking, or one half full and filling. Uh, we choose largely to look at it the latter way, but not unmindful of the former way. And so here, everything and anything is fair game as to the reasons for the visit and the implications and in terms of not just America's needs, concerns, and interests, but Saudi Arabia's needs, concerns, and interests, and where the two clash, and where the two coincide, where the two uh, complement one another, and where the two are in disagreement, 
and laced with tension. And we have some of the finest specialists one could hope to see and listen to in this regard. And we don't want any of you to hold back on your questions. And uh, five by, three by five cards have been provided to you. And we'd like for you to preface your question with the word how. Because you cannot answer a how question with yes or no. Uh, and that will tend to draw out a richer discussion. Uh, we will have the following as our speakers, uh, Dr. Fahad Nazim and uh, Nawaf Athari, <coughs> not in that order necessarily, though Fahad will start, uh, but to show that we have two Saudi Arabians here. Some of the commentary that we have seen from other gatherings have had lots of pontificators and pomposity, but no Saudi Arabians. Something's missing in that uh, picture. Uh, we have taken efforts not to have that piece missing. And all of our interns here today are from Saudi Arabia. And these are the emerging generation of not just the kingdom's future leaders, but this relationship's uh, future partners there. So we'll start with Dr. Fahad Nasser, columnist, Longtown, with Arab News, the long the largest uh, English language newspaper in Saudi Arabia. Uh, his focus has been on geopolitical issues, counterterrorism issues. He's a consultant for the embassy of Saudi Arabia, but his views in no way reflect uh, uh, the positions and the policies of the embassy of Saudi Arabia. He'll be followed by Colonel David DeRoche, uh, who like uh, Fahad, both are senior international affairs fellows of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. David DeRoche uh, has been involved with Special Forces, King's College in London, formerly in DOD as the director of the Reagan Peninsula Affairs. He's an associate professor at the Near East South Asia Center of the Department of Defense. And we're asking if Colonel Abbas Dahouk uh, would be good enough to comment on uh, what Colonel DeRoche uh, presents, or overlooks, or with what they may disagree. Uh, uh, Colonel Dahouk is the most recent immediate American past defense attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Saudi Arabia. A native of the region himself, formerly having talked at West Point, and we've traveled together <clears throat> with U.S. Armed Services Institution cadets from uh, uh, West Point. Uh, and then uh, we will shift to Nawaf Athari, Saudi Arabian, <clears throat> who is at the United Nations and the director of the United Nations <clears throat> interagency, intermission, permanent mission, and other envoys dealing with the issues of terrorism and counterterrorism. Uh, many think that the United States is seconded by no one in terms of uh, America's devotion of attention to counterterrorism issues. He knows otherwise. Uh, Saudi Arabia has contributed to this issue, to this cause, in the United Nations 
90 times more than what the United States of America has contributed. So he follows this from a different vantage point uh, than do many. And because there's a private sector dynamic to this, uh, we'll have the head of the United States Chamber of Commerce, Chris Kowski, uh, Kowski uh, who is the tip of the spear, the spear focusing on aspects of trade and joint commercial ventures and investment and technology cooperation, uh, as is Mike Ryan from the U.S. Saudi Arabian Business Council. We start with uh, Dr. Fahad Nazar and ask each to keep your remarks to less than 10 minutes. So we'll have a full 45 minutes of discussion and questions. Thank you. Before you begin, I just want uh, Najla Alves to just stand and be recognized. Thank you, Najla, for your internship with the council and helping us out. She's also from Saudi Arabia, in addition to Barak, who just left. But I just, you weren't here when we acknowledged our interns, but thank you uh, so much. Fine. Well, um, thank you very much, Dr. Anthony and Pat. Thank you for inviting me. It's always an honor to participate in uh, any event that the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations holds. Uh, always important events, and obviously today is no exception. Um, as Dr. Anthony said, I, I feel compelled to add it and stress it myself. Um, I always preface my remarks by, by making it clear that I do not speak on behalf of the Saudi Embassy or the Saudi government in any way. The views I express today are strictly my own. Um, the views I express anywhere to be frank, are always strictly my own. Um, <clears throat> also, I do want to clarify, for those who have heard me complaining about not writing my PhD dissertation, that's still the case. So thank you, Dr. Anthony, for introdu introducing me as doctor. I'm not quite there. Um, give it another year or two, but uh, who's counting at this point? So, um, so as Dr. Anthony said, um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is coming to the United States on an official visit. He will be arriving on the 19th of March. Um, this will be an official visit. It is obviously not his first visit to the United States, but it is his first visit as a current prince. Um, I believe this will be his fourth visit since uh, King Abdullah has assumed the throne in early 2015. Um, the White House has released a statement saying that he will be meeting with uh, President Trump at the White House on March 20th. This will also not be a first, even though it is somewhat unusual for the President of the United States to host uh, an official who is not the head of state. Um, this is not the first time that's happened. This happened the last time Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was in the United States, which was last year. And I think that's a testament to the strength of U.S.-Saudi relations. I think it's also an acknowledgment on the part of the administration of the central role that Prince Mohammed bin Salman plays in setting the uh, kingdom's uh, foreign policy, defense policy, economic policy, and energy policies as well. Um, it's also my understanding that Grand uh, Prince Mohammed will be uh, meeting with congressional leaders from both sides of the aisle. Um, and this also should not come as a surprise. I think that there's a realization 
among the Saudi leadership that while the president plays a very important role in U.S. foreign policy, that their Congress has a very important role to play as well. And this engagement with congressional leaders uh, from both sides of the aisle, I must uh, emphasize again, has been ongoing for a while. So and, and that is uh, consistent with uh, with the Saudi policy uh, in D.C. and has been the case for years. Um, it's also my understanding that the Crown Prince might uh, give a few media interviews, might meet with some uh, prominent journalists. I do know for a fact that there will be a CBS special, actually a 60-minute special on Sunday night. Uh, this will be the first televised uh, interview that uh, the Crown Prince has given to a Western media outlet. Um, it is with Nora O'Donnell. I don't know exactly how long it is. But uh, they've already begun showing uh, excerpts and uh, snippets of it. And based on that, I think that um, Prince Mohammed has, has once again uh, is, is using the, the, the candor and the, the frankness that, frankly, have endured him to, uh, endeared him to many uh, Saudis, for sure, especially young Saudis, because he speaks with, uh, with refreshing, I think, candor and honesty about the challenges that the kingdom faces both internally and, and uh, uh, externally as well. Um, it's also my understanding that there might be meetings with the thought leaders and think tanks in Washington, but I really don't have any details about that. Um, the visit will start in Washington, but will include several other cities. I believe there will be visits to New York, Boston, um, Seattle, possibly San Francisco, and possibly others. I think that while well, the official discussions here in Washington Washington, D.C. will obviously be very important. I think that uh, the Grand Prince will have equally important discussions with thought leaders and business leaders in the United States. I think to a great extent, one of the main objectives of the visit will be to showcase the many business opportunities, investment opportunities that are available uh, and that have opened up in Saudi Arabia as a result of the Vision 2030. Um, economic and social um, uh, reform plan that the Crown Prince introduced two years ago. Um, again, this is consistent with, uh, with many meetings that the Crown Prince has had with business leaders in the United States. Um, some of these meetings have happened here, but also business leaders have made multiple trips uh, to Saudi Arabia to explore various business opportunities. Now, prior to coming to the United States, um, the Crown Prince made two official visits to uh, Egypt and the United Kingdom. Uh, I paid very close attention to those visits, and I think um, uh, if, if what happened there is, is uh, evidence of things to come, I think that in addition to you, uh, Saudi Arabia's interests, that I think this will be an opportunity for the Crown Prince to speak about uh, Saudi Arabia's values. I think that the conventional wisdom uh, in Washington, D.C. for many years has been that the United States and Saudi Arabia share interests, but they do not share any values in common. Uh, I tend to disagree with that, especially at this moment in time. I think that um, the conference will be emphasizing uh, Saudi Arabia's values. I think he did that in a, in a very important way while he was in Egypt and the UK. So for instance, he paid a visit to St. Mark's Cathedral, which is a Coptic cathedral in Egypt, in Cairo. Um, while he was visiting, this was less than two weeks ago. Uh, that was the first time that a senior official, Saudi uh, Saudi official at that level, has made a visit to the cathedral. Uh, King Salman had met with the uh, Pope, uh, Coptic Pope, uh, Pope Teodros in 2016, but this was outside 
I believe it was his, uh, at his uh, residence. And uh, while in London, he also, uh, the Crown Prince, met with the uh, Bishop of Canterbury at his residence as well. Again, these were very public uh, meetings. Uh, media was there. Uh, it was covered in the Saudi press. And I think they sent a very strong message about Saudi Arabia of today, about Saudi Arabia's values. I think that the Crown Prince has spoken um, in very direct and very, uh, in an honest way, about what needs to happen in Saudi Arabia and beyond in the Muslim world when it comes to values. Um, he's, he said unequivocally that going forward, he will not allow extremists of any stripe to hamper the development of the kingdom. And that from going forward, I think it is incumbent on Muslim leaders, himself included, to explain to the world and frankly to you know, some people in the Muslim world what Islam is all about, that it is a, a a religion that promotes peaceful coexistence, moderation, uh, and toleration. And I think some of the initiatives, some of these very important steps that he has taken in Cairo and uh, in London will uh, most likely be replicated here as he pushes forward this, this very important message. Um, so I think this is, this is a, a broad overview of what I expect uh, from the visit, and I'd be happy to entertain further questions in the Q&A. Thank you. Excellencies, distinguished guests, I'd first like to thank Dr. John Duke Anthony, Pat Mancino of the National Council uh, for hosting us here today. Um, uh, and I'd like to thank uh, the hosts, uh, Willie, uh, I'm forgetting the name here. <laughs> Willie Park. Will Gallard. Um, Crown Prince Mohammed's upcoming visit comes at a time of great hope and excitement uh, about what is happening in the kingdom. Vision 2030 uh, and the many ways that the U.S. and the kingdom can work together in turning that vision into a reality uh, through a holistic and historic partnership aimed at creating stability, innovation, and economic opportunity for both populations. Uh, these goals cannot be achieved without a robust security relationship that not only counters terror threats, but prevents them uh, in the first place. The U.S.-Saudi counterterrorism partnership is of the utmost importance. Back in 2010, Saudi intelligence provided a critical tip-off to American and European intelligence officials that allowed British and Emirati security personnel to intercept concealed bombs that were already en route to the United States. The last-minute intelligence uh, was the product of long-running Saudi intelligence operations to infiltrate Al-Qaeda networks. This is just one of the many successes achieved uh, by the strategic partnership between our two nations. Uh, 2017 marked the beginning of a new chapter in U.S.-Saudi counterterror cooperation. Uh, this was highlighted by President Trump's visit to Riyadh at an unprecedented Arab-Islamic American summit where Muslim leaders gathered with His Highness King Salman and President Trump in a joint summit aimed at fostering an international commitment to eradicating terrorism and violent extremism and rooting out the funders and supporters of such networks. Uh, one of the most important steps taken by the U.S. in this regard was the public and official uh, condemnation of Iran as the largest state sponsor of terrorism and uh, the recognition of their destabilizing activities in the region. 
activities that can no longer be tolerated, and both countries share those views. Uh, although significant progress has been made, the threat remains very real. The Kingdom and the U.S. Uh, are determined to eradicate this threat on all fronts, tackling it militarily, financially, technologically, and ideologically. Uh, the Kingdom is among the coalition members of the Operation Inherent Resolve, conducting airstrikes against Daesh, along with its coalition partners led by the U.S. The Kingdom, the United States, and Italy are co-chairs of the Counter-ISIL Finance Group, uh, this group was established in 2015 with the aim of enhancing the sharing of information and uh, developing coordinated countermeasures to disrupt ISIL's financing. We also have established two uh, joint task forces with the United States, one to combat terrorists and the other to combat terror financing. Experts from both governments work side by side sharing real-time information uh, about terror networks. Um, and Saudi security forces have trained alongside American counterterrorism forces in the U.S. This experience and training uh, has led to the arrest and convictions of hundreds of terrorists back home uh, and the destruction of most known terror cells in the kingdom. Uh, and also the Saudi-U.S. Strategic Dialogue Counterterrorism Working Group created following 9-11 continues to help ensure that both governments' efforts and resources are aligned. Both nations realize this is not their battle alone, and in this regard have played key global roles uh, in fostering support and providing international leadership uh, in countering terrorism and preventing violent extremism. In, in, in recognition of that, last year, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman announced the establishment of the Islamic Military Counterterrorism Coalition, uh, which is supported by the United States and is based at a joint command center in Riyadh. The alliance has stated that its primary objective is to protect Islamic nations from all terrorist groups and terror organizations, regardless of sect uh, or affiliation. This alliance is a pan-Islamic coalition of 41 countries that will coordinate and, and multiply their individual efforts to fight terrorism and extremism, enabling them to work more effectively with other international security and peacekeeping efforts, and in line with the United Nations and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation's provisions on combating terrorism. Of course, military and financial means are effective in the short and medium term. However, in the long term, uh, the, generational the generational antidote is that of ideological reform. Uh, in an effort to counter radical ideology, government officials adopted a series of educational counterterrorism measures aimed at undermining extremist views and disrupting the activities of those who promote violent extremism. This led to the recognition that the root of the problems li lies in the digital battlefield. Several key initiatives have been launched in recent years to address this digital crisis. This past year marked the launch of the Global Anti-Extremism Center, Ertidad, a world-class center to fight online terrorist narratives and counter-extremism content on the web. Based in Riyadh, President Trump was there at the launch of this center. Uh, and close collaboration with the U.S. remains clear, critical to tackling the threat of this new landscape. Tech companies have been dragging their feet when it comes to innovating internal solutions to the problems that plague their platforms. This presents a unique opportunity for governments around the world to push this innovation and make it a priority uh, for the future. And the U.S. government, along with the kingdom, uh, have been doing just that. Uh, the grander wins in the ideological battle are surely the preventative ones, but the kingdom also recognizes the importance of saving those who have flipped over to the other side and also recognizes the key role that they may play in future de-radicalization efforts. In this regard, Saudi efforts through its counseling and care centers, 
uh, have been recognized globally for leading the way in developing methods of de-radicalization, rehabilitation, and reintegration of uh, former terrorists and violent extremists. These effective uh, behavioral programs give former terrorists a chance to reintegrate into uh, Saudi society, and also uh, they've provided their expertise and knowledge uh, against the, the, the groups that they formerly belonged to. Uh, internationally, and particularly in my domain at the United Nations, the Kingdom and the U.S. remain the two largest financial contributors to the United Nations Counterterrorism Center, and have played key roles in the recent establishment of the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism. Uh, the United Nations Counterterrorism Center is uniquely positioned in its ability to harness the gathering power of the UN to create a global mechanism that can solve problems dealing with terrorism and violent extremism on a national, regional, and international scale. Through the advisory board of member states and under the leadership of the Kingdom, the center has transformed into a collaborative hub and has encouraged an international cooperation in a field which lacks it in, in most regards. Uh, using a train-the-trainer approach, the United Nations Counterterrorism Center has developed into uh, the main UN capacity builder on the ground, helping countries and regions develop strategies and homegrown talent to combat terror. Uh, the center uh, has taken on several high-impact projects ranging from training border security practitioners in the Horn of Africa and the Sahel to developing uh, regional counterterrorism strategies in Central Asia the Middle East and Southern Africa, to youth engagement, skills development in Southeast Asia. The list goes on and on, uh, but what is unique here is that, the internet is that this international asset is able to identify specific problem areas, create plans of action, and execute them. <coughs> Peeking into the near future, the center will expand its focus in the coming months to the foreign terrorist fighters phenomenon, uh, weapons of mass destruction, and tech and information. Uh, through the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism, the United Nations will also host the first international summit this upcoming summer for heads of intelligence services. Uh, this is an unprecedented step uh, in global cooperation aimed at fostering uh, closer ties between intelligence services globally. Uh, if not for the Kingdom and the U.S. joint support for the Office of Counterterrorism and the United Nations uh, Counterterrorism Center, uh, this summit would not be possible. Uh, allow me to conclude by reading this statement uh, from uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at the Foreign Investment Initiative last year. Um, he said, what happened in the last 30 years is not Saudi Arabia. What happened in the region in the last 30 years is not the Middle East. After the Iranian Revolution in 1979, people wanted to copy this model in different countries. One of them is Saudi Arabia. We didn't know how to deal with it, and the problem spread all over the world. Now is the time to get rid of it. We are simply reverting to what we followed, a moderate Islam open to the world and all religions. 70% of Saudis are younger than 30. We won't, we won't waste 30 years of our life combating extremist thoughts. We will destroy them now and immediately. Ladies and gentlemen, these are truly powerful words which highlight and reinforce the deep commitment to tackling the root cause of the socially, economically, and geopolitically debilitating threat of extremist, extremism in the region. There is a clear alignment of vision and strategy between King Salman, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and President Donald Trump and his administration as it pertains to the security of our two nations and the stability of the region. Arms deals, robust military collaborations in the form of training, sharing of expertise and intelligence, counter-terror coalitions, all serve to illustrate this fact. The kingdom has proven itself to be an astonishingly resilient state in the face of terror, 
regional instability, rising threats, and surrounding political and civil unrest. Strong and long-standing U.S.-Saudi rela US relations deserve a great deal for this. Great, great deal of credit for this. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Dr. Do John Duke Anthony, uh, John Pratt, uh, Pat Mancino. Uh, the visit of the uh, Crown Prince uh, focuses on two different pillars, uh, the diplomatic angle and the commercial and the economic. And what I'd like to do uh, today is uh, speak not about Vision 2030 in itself, because I believe that, that that's been covered and will be covered, but instead focus on uh, the broad economic and commercial relationship. I recall, uh, I think it was January 2016, when together with our CEO, Tom Donahue, we met one evening in, uh, with uh, the Crown Prince in his office. And the first, I would say, 45 minutes, uh, it was the Crown Prince, ourselves, and uh, some of the key ministers uh, implementing uh, the economic reforms. The Crown Prince spoke almost nonstop, without pausing even for a sip of water, about his enthusiasm and his economic vision. He spoke at that point of time, Neom had not been uh, designed, but he talked about it. He talked about the bilateral commercial relationship. Fast forward six months after that, I recall we took a group of CEOs to meet with him on his visit here, and he had fleshed out many of those initial ideas together with his very talented economic team of ministers, and they spoke about it in terms of Vision 2030 and the 10 sectors that they were looking to reform. Throughout that process, together with, uh, the, uh, with American business, we have seen a plethora of different new initiatives, which I'll try to uh, summarize, but the underlying framework, uh, the underlying goal, rather, has been uh, an uptick very significantly in the economic and commercial cooperation. Vision 2030, in a nutshell, provides the enabling fabric, and I think, John, you have a wonderful publication out there that captures the enabling uh, objectives and the framework of different, uh, uh, the, the framework of different reforms the kingdom hopes to undertake as part of that plan. Uh, what you have seen since then is um, a number of constructs, whether it's a strategic partnership office, whether it's a national transformation plan, but also reform within the key ministries geared towards modernization of its economy and liberalization of its economy. For example, you've seen a new bankruptcy law that came out, very significant. You've seen labor market reforms. You've seen reforms in the defense sector in energy, beyond just fossil fuels, but also looking at solar and nuclear. You've seen uh, health sector reforms. We've been significantly engaged on that together with our companies. Financial sector reforms. Um, a number of different operational vehicles have been implemented to engage Saudi businesses, the Saudi government, American businesses, and of course with the support of the U.S. government. And we at the chamber have been at the forefront as many of those. A CEO summit that we uh, helped establish uh, has brought together commercial uh, leaders from both countries together with government leaders 
to look at the sets of issues that can, if addressed, significantly facilitate the commercial relationship. Along the sidelines of the POTUS visit, uh, we organized a set of uh, commercial uh, dialogues and of course the government of Saudi Arabia awarded a number of contracts and MOUs to a broad range of American companies and those are in the process of being operationalized. So in that first part, what I wanted to do was to kind of give you a very quick overview of the overarching framework that brings together the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on a commercial and economic basis. What I'd like to do next is focus on um, three new, what I see, economic drivers, and then um, end with focusing on what I see as the strengths, weaknesses, challenges, and opportunities in this uh, commercial partnership. To digress for a moment, clearly on the upcoming visit, and I think uh, Fahad Naz has spelled out very clearly uh, some of the objectives and what the Crown Prince will be doing. Uh, the economic and commercial uh, partnership is uh, very much at the forefront of all of those activities, not just for uh, the Crown Prince, of course that is most important uh, um, player in the relationship on the Saudi side, but also in terms of the key ministers and the delegation that would accompany uh, His Royal Highness. So the three new <coughs> fundamentals I see that uh, will drive the economy the role of women, the role of technology, and I think in many ways the most consequential in terms of um, what we see new is the role of partnerships between businesses and between businesses and the government. Uh, the role of women, I mean clearly you have seen that uh, not just in women that will be allowed to drive, but we are seeing increasing roles in the technology sector and also in uh, women playing a greater role in the retail sector. So um, there, um, there you see that very significant new driver in the economy. It's an incredible source of talent for American companies doing business in the kingdom. The role of technology, uh, the Crown Prince um, comes from a new generation of leaders, uh, a generation of leaders very conversant and uh, uh, adapt with technology, so do many of his ministers, and therefore you see that sector of the economy, um, both through its investments into the United States, through partnerships, but most importantly through opening up and doing reforms, whether it's lines of credit, whether it's incubators that enable um, the younger generation of Saudis to start up their own firms to play a bigger role participating in the economy. And uh, that's a second new fundamental driver and a differentiator between the, the economy of Saudi Arabia today and as it looks forward and in the economy of the past. And the th third, and I think is the most important for anyone taking note on uh, a success uh, criteria for American business and that's partnerships. I think um, it is fair to say uh, that many of our businesses have benefited tremendously over the last decades from uh, engaging and working with the kingdom. The change now is that they like to see American companies not just as vendors but also as partners. And that has uh, two dimensions to it. The first is that commercial agreements will be structured 
yeah, in a multifaceted way, not just as a buyer and a seller or a service provider uh, and, and, a, and, and, a, and a recipient of that service, but instead it will have angles of co-financing, it will have angles of training, it will have very long-term uh, partnerships uh, associated with it, and it will have, uh, to the extent it can, knowledge and technology transfers both ways. So you would see Saudi investment into the United States and you see U.S. investment there. When we speak about technology transfers and I think that, that it, it can be a two-way street. Um, in many areas, in the petrochemical industry in particular, where you see joint ventures, Saudi Arabia brings a tremendous amount of in-depth knowledge. Albeit developed through American talent initially, but certainly taken uh, to a step beyond that. And therefore, uh, the transfer of knowledge, transfer of training, uh, partnerships at the human resource level is a, is a differentiator in any type of commercial arrangement moving forward. So role of women, role of technology partnerships I see is critical to this new framework that the Crown Prince I think is driving in terms of commercial and economic engagement. Uh, clearly any new strategy has strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats associated with it. What are the strengths that Saudi Arabia brings? Uh, youthful population, an increasingly educated population, many of them conversant and educated in the United States. Uh, a commitment to reform, led at the very highest level, together with a strategy, uh, albeit you know, there are challenges in rolling out any strategy. What are the weaknesses that the kingdom may face as it looks to this? I think that uh, the prices of energy and uh, the, 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 the energy markets at a time where it has seeks to invest. And I think that that is something that uh, any economy would face, and that I would say as, as, as a challenge or weakness. I would, different weak, potential weakness from a challenge, in that the challenges are moving an economy that's been largely driven by the public sector to a private sector economy in any country. And uh, if you look back at our own economy in the 1980s when President Reagan started many of those reforms, you see that that's a challenge, moving from a state-dominated eco economy to a private sector-led economy. Um, the other uh, challenge is that Saudi Arabia has a very young population that looks to, um, uh, to, to benefit from the uh, economic reforms being done and the challenge is that a youthful population is also sometimes impatient. And therefore, uh, that, that, that is a challenge and a dynamic that does have to be managed. As you transform the economy and you get rid of subsidies, it is the right thing to do. It is the thing that they are doing ex expeditiously. That comes together with uh, a series of challenges, which I might say the kingdom has managed very, very well uh, today. The last but not least is the opportunities. Opportunities clearly that it provides the kingdom, economic reform and economic growth, but also opportunities that it provides American companies. You have new sectors that are opening up. Technology, healthcare, um, not just energy and infrastructure as in the past, but you have an opportunity for American companies to engage in long-term partnerships. Um, you see the service economy opening up. Uh, whether it's uh, entertainment, whether it's retail, whether it is hospitality, uh, transportation, uh, sports. So that's a whole new sector of the economy and a sector that America competes extremely well in um, relative to 
Uh, and when I use the word competition, I mean America's competitors in the Middle East are Japan, uh, France, Germany, Korea, Chinese in many sectors. But in, if you look at any of the sectors that Saudi, the Saudi economies were opening up in, the United States has a competitive edge, I would contend. And if I may add, um, the Saudis' businesses like to partner with American uh, companies. I think that we are the preferred partner of choice. Uh, and um, So you have new sectors opening up, and I think that presents a tremendous opportunity. I'd be happy to take um, any questions in the Q&A. Thank you. We will um, continue on the uh, private sector, uh, corporate, investment, trade, and the like, uh, joint ventures, and then come back to Colonel DeRoche and Colonel Daouk. Uh, hey, Dr. Anthony. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mike Ryan, Strategic Market Advisor for the U.S. Saudi Arabian Business Council. And uh, Kush, uh, you stole my speech, so I'm not sure what I'm going to be able to talk about now. Um, I'll be providing a brief analysis and overview of what's for three sectors that we're primarily focusing on in Saudi Arabia. That's healthcare, infrastructure, and defense. I'm going to lead off with healthcare. Um, in correspondence with Vision 2030 and the healthcare industry, healthcare and training have become one of the top priorities for the Saudi Arabian government. 13.5% uh, of government spending will be dedicated to the sector, and we're projecting the contribution of health services to Saudi, to Saudi Arabian GDP to increase by over 13% by 2025. The demand from our forecast also suggests the sector is growing at a compound annual growth rate at 2.3%. The opportunities for healthcare is local manufacturing of pharmaceutical goods, investment in private medical facilities, increase in medical insurance, and, all, and U.S. companies are well positioned to be a major contributor for the healthcare sector. Leading into infrastructure, uh, Saudi Arabia has known and is the largest infrastructure market in the Middle East, and it is also paramount portion to Vision 2030 for the diversification aspect of Vision 2030. Public-private partnerships are an, area that, uh, are an area that Saudi Arabia wants to boost, and the focus for this is on mega-projects in the residential developments. As we've seen, mega-projects such as NEOM in Saudi Arabia create a foundation for new and ongoing projects forced to create a strong reserve, ongoing projects for strong reserve sources, excuse me. However, we expect the demand for residential projects to have an annual growth rate by 38 and a third percent. But as spending by the Saudi Arabian government has decreased over the years in the infrastructure and slowed down the industry, uh, the longer term goals of economic diversification and continued development of the nation's infrastructure sector is a critical investment that in the long run will be a huge success. By 2016 and 2017, Saudi has been marked by a continued signing of new defense contracts between, well, between Saudi Arabia and large international defense firms. 
reflecting a robust defense sector and opportunities for U.S. defense firms. In January 2018, the United States finalized the $500 million military sale of military systems to Saudi Arabia, primarily from Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. <laughs> and at the most recent Armed Forces Exhibition for Diversification, the Royal Saudi Air Force and General Electric agreed to a transfer of technology for maintenance and overhaul of engines in the, in the Royal Saudi Air Force fleet. The, this technology overhaul and maintenance overhaul is now limited to the F-15S Apache helicopters and the T-700 for the Blackhawks. This agreement is expected to create 250 to 300 jobs in Saudi Arabia and a 2.6 billion real return over the next five years. The outlook for American defense companies is strong in Saudi Arabia. Some of the successful partnerships that we've seen and experienced with the U.S. and Saudi Arabian firms or government organizations is Lockheed and Tacnia, where Tacnia is now developing parts for the Black Hawk helicopter. Boeing and Al-Salam Aerospace, where they've worked on the F-15Ss together. Northrop Grumman and the Saudi National Guard, where Vanilla Arabia was created. And also Oshkosh Defense and their participation with the Saudi Land Forces and Saudi Special Forces. In order to be successful in Saudi Arabia, in the defense sector, or private sector as a whole, U.S. companies will have to work alongside not only the U.S. government, but also the Saudi government in order to find commercially attractive and regulation permissible partnerships. I'm happy to take any questions after this, but thank you. Thank you, Mike. Now we'll turn to uh, Colonel David Garoche and uh, followed by comment uh, from uh, Colonel Pastahouk, and then uh, we will take your uh, questions. Again, uh, fill out your questions on uh, three by five cards. Sorry, I, um, first off, I have to apologize for being late. Um, if I knew how much effort would be involved in being a uh, secretly costume crime fighter, I would have never taken on the job. Um, and uh, this is my contact information. If you wanted, I have to say that I do not speak for the United States government. Um, this was the Chief of Staff of Saudi Armed Forces. And as you see, he is being bounced out. Um, so when we look at that, we have three questions as to the uh, state of the Saudi Armed Forces going into the summit and how the U.S. interacts with them. The question is, what is causing this change where several service chiefs have been replaced? Basically, they've all been replaced since November. And historically, when one looks at armed forces, there are three reasons. The first reason is there is relief for cause. So uh, the Yemen war, uh, not going well, relieved the Air Force commander. Uh, a ballistic missile, Burkhan II missile, lands at Riyadh International Airport, relieve the air defense commander. And the air defense is our separate service in Saudi Arabia, and indeed, an elite service in Saudi Arabia. Um, we do this in the United States all the time. It's primarily the Navy. If a Navy ship crashes into something, the captain gets fired. The second reason for relief is a relief for loyalty. This you don't generally see in the United States. You haven't seen it since 1960 when Major General Edwin Walker was relieved as commander of the 8th Infantry Division for uh, using army presses to print off John Birch Society tracks. Uh, but basically it's regime, yeah, some of, some of the older folks get that. Um, uh, 
regime protection. Um, regime protection explains a, a great deal of the to westernize anomalies in the Saudi defense structure, like why do they have an army and a national guard, which is basically another army. And so the idea is that in, an, in a Saudi regime that is transforming, that one wag has dubbed more like Salmani Arabia than Saudi Arabia, uh, it makes sense to uh, consolidate, remove, and let people whose loyalty might be wavering know that they can be replaced. The third reason is to send a message. And uh, we've done this in the United States at the start of World War, when George Marshall took over as Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. Uh, he convened a board that went through and looked at every general officer. Over 100 general officers from the United States Army were removed at the start of World War II. If you read contemporaneous accounts of this, this is reported as being on a par with what Stalin did, particularly among the National Guard. But look, the old ways of doing business are unsustainable. And uh, most people who look at Saudi Arabia from the inside or from the outside with any degree of objectivity have said that status quo circa 2014 is unsustainable. The Saudi armed forces do need to improve do need to transform, and uh, very rarely are people who are vested in a system active participants in that transformation. There has to be uh, somebody uh, removed someplace along the way, uh, if for no other reason than pour encourager les autres. So let's take a look at the reasons of cause. I'm going to talk primarily about this missile. This is the Burkhan II missile. It is actually a Qaim missile produced by Iranian military industries in Tehran, transported illicitly to Yemen uh, in stages, we think, welded together, painted with this livery that you see here, and then um, fired at Saudi Arabia, supposedly as a entirely Yemeni-produced thing. If so, it is the most uh, advanced product ever produced in Yemen. Uh, I don't think this is this bears any veracity. This is the actual missile itself with our celebrity spokesmodel. Um, this is the missile that landed at Riyadh International Airport. It actually landed 10 minutes after I landed at Riyadh International Airport in November, so I, I felt that it was quite a justice for me to be with it. And this is the new commander of the Saudi uh, Air Defense Forces. Now look, he was the deputy commander of the Saudi Air Defense Forces. So if you want to have a sea change from, you know, you want to move from A to X, it doesn't seem to make sense to take the guy who was the deputy to the commander. Usually the deputy is pretty much in line with the thinking of the commander. So this would seem to indicate uh, a couple of things. First off, there's not a whole lot of strategy, tactics, operational differences that you can make in the air defense forces. They're mostly involved in a single source mission, defending things from the air. But what it does show is this sort of failure cannot happen again. Admiral Hyman Rickover once was presented with a case of a naval officer who had an accident on his ship and the investigating officer said it was just bad luck. And Admiral Rickover responded, we shall have no unlucky admirals in this Navy. I think this is the case here. The second reason is regime protection. Uh, the upper left-hand picture are military police of the Saudi Arabian National Guard with an American trainer in the bottom are um, cadets at the passing out parade of the Saudi National Guard Academy. Viewed from any objective or program management or military criteria, the separate status of the Saudi National Guard is an anomaly. 
Uh, most academic literature by scholars of the Gulf, going back over 30 years, says the reason why it's there is to, first off, ensure loyalty of various tribes, which becomes less compelling a reason as Saudi Arabia becomes more urbanized and less tribal, and secondly, to coup-proof the regime. Well, coups were a daily or near-daily occurrence in the Middle East in the 50s through the 1970s, but aside from the... Um, Morsi uh, replacement by uh, el-Sisi and the Algerian uh, uh, nullification of the elections in the early 1990s, there hasn't been a coup in the Arab world in recent years. It uh, seems to be that uh, rather than this sort of game of thrones where one branch of the military replaces the others, what you see instead are only these sort of coups where the deep state exerts itself to, to protect the rules of the state itself. So. Perhaps this anomaly will be done here, but at the same time, the reformation in the Saudi military seems to have been done for purposes of regime protection. Let people know that if you're wavering, your power base is transient. The third reason is transformation, and this is legitimate. Um, here you see the crown prince speaking to various leaders of the military. By all accounts, everybody who knows and talks to the crown prince, he gets it. He understands the need for it. He has a strength of personality and charisma. He has vision. Um, his span of control uh, can be questioned, but um, he seems to be a, a historical figure for a historical time. The picture below is the S-400 in Russian service. This is perhaps the greatest um, potential bone of contention between the United States and Saudi Arabia, because um, if Saudi Arabia were to purchase the S-400, it will be an air defense system that is completely incompatible with the existing Saudi air defense infrastructure that was purchased at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars. So when I look at this and you know when this is discussed, I'm sure that um, the United States side will say, if you purchase this, it will be dysfunctional in terms of our relationship. We will not be able to have our the weapons that we sell, you Patriot, Thad, Hawk, co-located with these because we can't um, risk the possibility of Russian officers uh, compromising it. And I'm sure the Saudi response will be one of two things. Either they will say, we are interested in this because it is a very expensive, high-tech item of machinery, um, even more expensive than the engine overhauls that Mr. Ryan spoke of, that they have agreed to co-produce here thus meeting the 25% local production transformation target in Vision 2030, which I don't think they will agree to do that, but we can argue with that later. And the second thing they might say is, just as Saudi Arabia in practice operates two separate navies, one in the Gulf and one in the Red Sea, because of qualitative military edge concerns that have uh, that are always raised whenever Saudi Arabia tries to defend its border with Israel, we are going to operate two separate air defense systems. An American system that uh, is patriot, that is against the Iranian threat, whether it's based in Yemen or in Iraq, and another one along the northern border. I don't think that's a starter. I, I don't think that's a legitimate reason, but you know, in the absence of facts, this is just informed speculation. Now, what do you see? <laughs> Okay, I see the Stanley Cup full of poutine being lifted victoriously in Montreal. But uh, Charles Manson may see something different. This is a Rorschach blot. And what you see here tells you 
more about the observer than what is actually on the page. And unfortunately, we are at that point with Saudi Arabia. The actions needed to truly transform Saudi Arabia to, to jerk a society that has some negative aspects of tradition and tribalism that have impeded necessary progress, um, to cut the Gordian knot of bureaucracy, entrenched self-interest, and corruption. Um, those actions are exactly the same actions at this point as would be taken if uh, one wants to consolidate power exclusively and have just one locus of power. We will not know for several years whether um, the transformation, the changes we're seeing are self-interested or disinterested. And so honestly, when you look at, and when you read analysis of the actions in Saudi Arabia, you're looking at a Rorschach blot. And basically what you are hearing says more about the analysts than the actions ongoing in Saudi Arabia. This is one of the big American interests that has to be preserved, the big weapon buy. This is that. Um, as you know, Donald Trump announced $110 billion at the, uh, the Glowing Orb Summit. $23 billion of that had already been approved under the Obama administration. We're starting to see these trickle through. Uh, chances are pretty good that um, between um, 50 to 90 percent of the announced sales will actually go through. Either the Saudis will lose interest or um, the Americans will decide not to do it, or the terms of the offer will expire. Um, now, this is another uh, interest that will be raised, the, the uh, ceremony for the JCPOA. I was about to say the signing ceremony, but there is nothing signed. The JCPOA is not a document. The JCPOA is not a structure. The JCPOA is an agreed upon rule, set of rules. It's basically a freeway with no lines painted on it. Um, but I think we are kind of uh, coming to the conclusion that the United States does not have the oomph, to use the technical term, to uh, unilaterally renounce it without allies and cooperation of others. So that will be one interest because we know that the Saudis and we know that everybody else uh, in the region has problems with JCPOA. If for no other reason, the Saudis um, are, are you know, logically quite right in saying everything you give to Iran, a transgressor, you should give to us. Hard to argue with. This is a second, this is a bomb damage in Yemen. Um, the United States has supported Saudi Arabia in its war with Yemen. Uh, that support is not open-ended, and I believe we are not at the end of that support, but I believe we can see the limits of the end of our support coming into play. Uh, there are two reasons. The first is the humanitarian um, situation in Yemen is becoming generally better known, and it is not uh, a popular uh, cause in the United States, put, put plainly. It is not a popular cause. There's a couple reasons for that. Of course, most Americans still view Iran as a terrorist state and as hostage takers, but um, any war that is waged from the air against people on the ground is just, we just viscerally feel it is unfair. This is the problem we have with drone warfare. We don't, we, we, we object viscerally to drones being used to target people that we would not object to, you know, if we put in special forces commandos to shoot them on the ground. They're just as dead either way, but we feel it's unfair. That's reason number one. Reason number two, there is a legitimate issue of congressional law and the role of Congress in waging warfare. And it's not just confined to Yemen, it reflects the authorization for the use of military force, which at the time it was voted in was restricted to Afghanistan, and uh, I just 
the reason why I'm late was I was in the Pentagon and an official there said American forces are engaged in combat in 14 different countries right now. There is no declaration of war for any of those countries. The authorization for the use of military forces is there. Don't ask me to list the 14 countries because I couldn't do it. So um, this, if you want any of my suggestions, you can have it there. Um, let me just give one final, um, uh, in the military we generally have a sustain and then an improve, an up or a down. I want to make uh, a one of each. On the sustained front, counterterrorism. Since 2006, the United States has not had a better ally in counterterrorism than Saudi Arabia. Um, that is uh, just a fact. And that is something that I think the Saudis will raise, and that is something that I think the American sides will acknowledge. And I think that we're at the level now where we do not argue about the nature of the problem, definition of the problem. We argue about the best ways to attach the problem, attack the problem. And that is a good thing. And then a down, the GCC crisis, the Qatar blockade. Um, look, uh, that is impeding collaboration on several things. And, and if you're interested in missile defense, uh, I can talk about it forever, and I pretty much have. So uh, with that, in the interest of politeness, I will uh, sit down and uh, cede the podium to a real expert and welcome your questions later. Thank you. I don't know what real expert. Colonel Abbas, do you want to stand from here, well, maybe? Since, I'm, uh, so not, since I don't have any uh, prepared remarks, I think I'll just talk, uh, talk some notes here. Okay, like can you to, hear from here? in the back? No. Um, okay, I'll go up Okay, good afternoon, I'm Dr. Anthony. So thanks for the opportunity. I'm most honored to participate. And like everybody's saying, the views on their own and my views on my own. I, while I'm a DOD official, I work for the Department of State, but I'm not speaking for DOD nor Department of State. Um, well, Saudi Arabia is a, is a dear country to me because I spent over six years in Saudi Arabia on two different occasions. Uh, first time I was there from 2004 to 2006. And then I went back again from early 2014 till uh, 2017, right after the, uh, the uh, president's visits in May and uh, uh, August last year, I came back. So I've, I've seen the uh, Saudi Arabia from, from the DOD, not necessarily from Minister of Defense, Minister of Defense and Minister of National Guard, and also MY, transformed differently. So the transformation is real. It's been happening way before uh, the, the, the Vision 2030. I can take you back to 2014, 2004, when at that time Saudi Arabia was going through its own September 11. And really, all the security forces in their MOI, MOD, MNG, didn't know what to do with it. Uh, and the difference between, uh, between our war on terrorism and their war on terrorism is uh, the, uh, the terrorist was somebody else, you know, outsider here in the United States. But in Saudi Arabia, the, terror, the terrorist was one of them. So it wasn't like, you know, President Bush, it was easy for him to say, you are with us or with the, with the terrorists. They could not say that in Saudi Arabia because those terrorists are somebody's brother, somebody's son from a, from a prominent tribe. So it was hard to do. And I remember when uh, it was also maybe perhaps for the first time where all the ministries got together. Minister of the National Guard, Minister of the Interior, Minister of Defense, 
trying to figure out how to how to solicit support from the United States and to do this. At the same time, where we're looking at we're looking at this CT element, they have also problems on the north. You know, uh, 2004, Saddam is out, chaos all over all of Iraq. We're very involved inside Iraq, but nobody was looking at the Saudi borders, Saudi Iraqi borders. Same thing, MOD had to deploy forces to go up there and try to just block the, the northern borders to work with National Guard. So all this love, complex set of skills is not ready for it, but they start working it. And then they started, they, all, all these security forces realized that we have to do something. As the time has come to start, not just be a consumer of articles and services, we have to start working together. Uh, the first, the first ministry to do very well and transform very quickly and to do this is just what we mentioned on the uh, Dave uh, mentioned on the CD effort. MOI was was pretty quick to put their uh, uh, you know ducks in order, and we had uh, we was a lot of help from the United States because we have a, a common interest. We need to uh, get rid of the bad guys, and they were they transformed and they've been doing very well. And the one thing they did actually at that time too was uh, they called the terrorist. Uh, Afei al-Dawla, the DPN youth. I thought that was a that was a brilliant move on uh, on on their behalf. Uh, basically, uh, that puts uh, you know face behind the terrorists. So even though they're uh, they're terrorists, but they're still one of us. They're they're, they're some of the, uh, the people who actually deviated from the right path. So anyway, so that was their own way to do this, to counter ideology to, to do that. So what I'm saying here is, MY was able to transform quickly. Fast forward back to 2000 and. Uh, and uh, 13, 14, for example. Early 2014 in May, uh, the uh, Saudi Armed Forces put in an exercise together. They call it Sayf Abdullah, the Sword of Abdullah. And that, and that intentionally, when they put this exercise together, they, uh, they, they worked it themselves. They did not rely on military missions, whether it's a British mission, whether it's or American missions, or Australian missions, they didn't. They, they just, they meaning the Saudi MOD, Saudi Armed Forces, wants to show their leadership that we are a capable force. After all, if you have a capable army ready to go and the political leadership doesn't want to use them, they can't do anything. They still need a political leadership to tell them to uh, do something. So the whole exercise was basically, we, we are your sword, King Abdullah. We deploy, deploy as, you, as, as you see fit. And, and with that exercise, they, they brought in all this uh, GCC and other, other, other countries together. So that was, now, and, and that was for the first time, if you recall, they displayed their Chinese missile. So that was also show show of force, because they, they realized, MOD realized, or the Saudi uh, Kingdom realized that Iran is a, it's becoming a threat, and we have to do something about it. And that's initially, that's, that's one thing, one element to do this. So fast forward a little bit, where uh, we came to them and we asked them to participate in the counter-ISIS campaign. I, I look at ISIS and their operations in Yemen, it's kind of the same thing. You know, ISIS, a, a, a renegade or non-state actors that start to expand inside a country where, where, and we're about to take on Baghdad. And the same thing, the Houthis expanded and they took the capital. Uh, but so, so, so back to Iraq, when, when we, we wanted an Arab face into the operation, Saudis were the first one to, uh, to say, yes, let's do it. And, uh, and they did, and they started participating in our uh, counter-ISIS campaign, and they were the first one with the Emiratis to go over Syria. So that's where the Saudi Armed Forces started to show to their political leadership 
Now, we're not just, you know, uh, you know, talking the talk and Saif Abdullah exercise, we're just showing parading, uh, parading forces and we're just popping caps. We actually can do something. And during that, that, that specific exercise, the Saudis asked to do their own air to air refueling. So they were doing their own operations because they were really serious. They knew that one day they had to do something themselves. So they, they did, did that, and I think they did, they did it very well. Uh, fast forward to, uh, that was uh, at the end of, uh, I think, 2014. And then in August, September 2014, back the following year, in March 2015, when their elite political leadership said, you, you know what, we've been, uh, we've been talking to the international community about this threat of Houthis. Here's, uh, they're a non-state actor. They're uh, hijacked the military. And they took on another Arab capital, and they actually worked for Iran, and that's and also their next door neighbor. We need to do something about it. So our military stepped up to the mic and and formed a coalition. It was the uh, a fighting coalition? It was the only only fighting coalition outside Western powers, and they actually went in there. And I think initially did a great job. I mean the same thing when we went in there to do uh, the counter ISIS. The only thing we were worried about ISIS takes back that. Our, uh, we, we stopped them, we slowed their they stopped the ISIS from taking back that. We slowed their momentum and we started, you know, attract them slowly. And remember, this is now a 70 countries coalition, have a ton, the top 10 most powerful air forces in the world, and we're still fighting ISIS. So they, they did the same thing. They stopped, they stopped uh, the, uh, the Houthis from taking, they took the capital, but they were going south, and they were, you know, and they stopped, they stopped the, uh, they stopped, uh, stopped them from taking Aden, and it's the status quo right now. It's uh, they're trying to keep maintain the pressure. It's getting harder and harder because it's all in the urban, and and you don't have many people on the ground, so they have a lot of, a lot of issues. But uh, what I'm trying to say here is uh, the transform transformation for the military is very, is real, and just talking to the uh, the. Uh, the uh, the general officers, I like said, some of these guys that I worked with in 2004, 5, 6, they're still in the, you know, still in the, in the, in the service, and there's some of them uh, that moved up. Uh, they, 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 um, they're very professional, and, and again, they're uh, they, uh, they they're limited to their leadership. And there is also political dimension for everything they do, um, but uh, with the limit, with all the limitation they have, and and I think they're 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 moving forward, and uh, as long as we that maintain this cooperation with other countries, I mean we have United, for example, United, for us in the United States for the last what 12 years, uh, the, some of the land forces, our land forces, uh, army is engaged in combat oper combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. So not much you know joint operation joint or, or exercises happened with the Saudis, for example. Uh, so that that needs to you know uh, they need they can they can buy a lot of stuff and they can be serious but they need to do this uh, this common common training common uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, Western allies um, and if they can't do that I mean it seems like they're trying to do something with Muslim nations that's when they created the Islamic Military Counterterrorism Center the idea is if we get if we can't do a joint uh, exercises or we can't do a military cooperation with the Western power. Let's, let's us, us meaning Muslim countries, GECC uh, plus Arab plus Muslim countries, band together and start exercising together. Let's bail out each other out. 
and instead of going, uh, especially on the CT side, because on the CT side you don't need a lot of technology transfer, you don't need high-speed uh, uh, military equipment. And all this uh, uh, munition and low-tech type technology, they have it. They mean within their own uh, Muslim and GCC and Arab countries. So let's start to operate at that level, and that's what you see the Islamic Military Counterterrorism Center going in there. And then they had another exercise too um, uh, with the Muslim countries that they call the Rani Shimen, Northern Thunder. That's again, that's only Muslim countries participated in it. And uh, the last day I remember they, in, this, in the stadiums they had I think, 11 heads of state sitting all together. And the whole exercise was to defend Saudi Arabia, and they're all came to it. And, and while it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of show uh, in it, and uh, I don't know, uh, you know, how they prep for it, but the only thing evident, the one thing is you can see is all these militaries, whether from UAE, from Qatar, from even Pakistan, brought some jet fighters, they brought their equipment with them. So that to itself, just to staging forces, the moving forces from point A to point B, that, that, that required a lot of effort. We thought, uh, the Emiratis brought their French tanks, and they said Pakistanis brought the uh, um, uh, aircrafts. The, the Sudanese brought also Russian tanks. We have Russian tanks, French tanks, American tanks, hodgepodge of different things. And it's it's, it's difficult to operate, but I think they're, they're getting there. And it's it's up to uh, the United States and other countries if we think uh, our interests, which are, are you know aligns, uh, you know, try to invest a little more in it. Uh, one, one minor thing, one last thing I'm going to talk about, what Mike mentioned about the uh, military industry. Um, again, there's a, there's a different transformation there, you know, co-production, co-development is, is, uh, is no longer enough. You know, localization, localization, the same thing like we do, we want to create jobs here in the United States, they want to create jobs, they want to transfer the technology to them, they want to uh, build their own exper expertise within their own country. And I think the good thing I see about this is uh, it seems now the population in, at least in the region, they look at the American uh, industry as an enabler. It's, 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 uh, it's, um, it's for defense, not just draining their, uh, their coffers or draining the budget. They know like, okay, it's, uh, no, we buy an American, but that's, that's important. We need it to defend ourselves. I mean, look at the Patriot system. They bought it, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years ago. Back then, people were looking at them, why do you need that system? But fast today, I mean, that saved the kingdom a, a lot. Uh, so, so there's a change in there. Now people, uh, when they buy a, from Lockheed or other company, so from a, from a guy on the street might say, okay, at least we're building some of it here, creating jobs and we're making some, uh, we're making some money. Versus in the past, you just buy it and you, you take it in there and you're not getting much out of it. That's great. Thank you. for um, Q&A and discussion, and uh, I have a number of uh, questions already submitted, but uh, open to uh, additional ones being passed uh, forward. And I'll, I'll, I'll necessity group several together rather than ask them necessarily in sequence.
some of the uh, questions will uh, obviously and uh, of necessity uh, not cover uh, what the speakers uh, covered, uh, but the speakers uh, superbly provided a range of uh, background and uh, context and uh, perspective uh, for various uh, questions. This is uh, clearly a, an unprecedented uh, visit and um, as was mentioned, uh, preceded by visits to uh, Egypt as well as uh, Great Britain uh, and the sequencing there with regard to Saudi Arabia's ongoing major interest in Great Britain and uh, Egypt. Uh, the degree to which they complement or complicate uh, America's uh, needs, concerns, and interests. Which uh, of the speakers would like to um, answer uh, the following ones here? We don't hear much of any anymore on the counterterrorism front of the um, centers that were set up under the leadership of former uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Nasser. Naya, thank you. Uh, uh, son of the former Minister of uh, Interior whereby the families were involved and you tried to um, tackle the issue of recidivism. And at the time it was hailed as innovative, creative, and uh, overwhelmingly effective. Uh, but we hear next to nothing about it any longer. Nawaz, might you take on that one? And um, uh, Colonel Dahoke and um, Colonel uh, DeRoche, feel free to add as well. working? Everybody hear me? Excellent. Uh, thank you, Dr. Anthony, for the question. I actually mentioned those uh, counseling and care centers uh, in my remarks. Uh, they, they are still up and running. Uh, they're, they're doing an excellent job. They're, they're globally recognized for their work in uh, rehabilitation, uh, reintegration. And, and it's also a dynamic of Saudi society that they've been able to utilize the strong family structure and being able to uh, harness that and gaining perspectives and, and getting cooperation from the family members in uh, letting them know if somebody is showing signs of radicalization uh, and cooperating with them. And also the center has uh, provided uh, a lot of these former terrorists and former extremists with jobs uh, and, 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 and financial security so that they know that they're all set once they get out of there. And, and a lot of them ended up helping uh, in counterterrorism operations and, and, and helping catch some of the terror cells that were in Saudi Arabia. So those counseling uh, care centers are, are still up and running in Saudi Arabia and still doing an excellent job. All right, while uh, I have you, you mentioned in passing something about focusing on the uh, foreign terrorist fighters phenomenon. Um, might you, uh, uh, the other two on the military front, uh, address that? Uh, it looked at almost as though it was a typographical error when you saw that small, relatively small to other 
Arab countries, Tunisia had as many as 8,000 um, uh, Tunisians who left Tunisia and uh, went to fight uh, with ISIS, ISIL, and uh, other extremist uh, groups. Um, where are we in terms of this foreign fighters phenomenon? This is a real issue, and, and uh, it's affecting everyone, countries that you wouldn't uh, expect to be dealing with this. Uh, the Singapores, the Maldives of the world are dealing with this in a very real way. Um, one of the things that I mentioned with the foreign terrorist fighters phenomena is that we, we need a better understanding of how to deal with returnees. And, and when I mentioned it, it was uh, in the context of a study that was conducted by the United Nations Counterterrorism Center, uh, where they were the uh, first international center to get permission by 13 different governments to uh, interview uh, their captured foreign terrorist fighters, either uh, trying to uh, go to Syria or on their way back. Um, and so that was aimed at trying to foster a better understanding as to how to deal with them, what the motivations are, um, and, and, and kind of conduct an academic study and seeing how uh, a kid from Somalia is joining the same cause as a kid from Belgium. Uh, and so uh, that study has been released through the center. Uh, I've, I've provided it in a previous uh, National Council uh, speaking engagement I've had and provided it with yeah. the Roche. And, and, and I encourage everyone to go. it. <laughs> there you go. And, and I encourage everyone to go on to the United Nations Counterterrorism uh, Center's website to find that study. It's there and it's uh, first of its kind. Right. Uh, Colonel, I hope you want to add to that. Just on, the, on, the, on the foreign fighters, just quick comment. I think the foreign fighters uh, issue is uh, not really a military issue, it's a diplomatic issue. Because we have a lot of I mean, people already in custody by the hundreds, and some countries that just don't want it back. And then, like, especially some people in Iraq and in Syria. Uh, we still have some in the Bay, right? They try to try to see how to work, work, work to send them. So it's a diplomatic issue more than a military issue, and uh, I think the problem is not as as bad as it used to be, but uh, still a problem, and it's a diplomatic problem. Interesting. Oh, sure. Um, well, I, I have taken Nawaf's uh, work and used it. Um, so I, I, I kind of have a, a talk that I give on this whole thing, and if you go on YouTube and look at my name uh, at the Westminster Institute, I gave it, they have the whole talk. But basically, um, there are studies that look at psychological motivations of, of fighters and foreign fighters, and, and I have dived into the analysis so they're not as good as my friend, because I let him do the work and then I say I did it. Um, uh, but uh, basically, in Western democracies, um, the greatest uh, contributor for fighters on a per capita basis is Belgium. And uh, when you look at the analysis, I think that what you find is that in the West, uh, foreign fighters reflect a failure of assimilation. So concurring with Colonel de Hook, um, you know, you have a few people who are converts, who are, you know, low-level criminals. But by and large, um, most of the foreign fighters coming from the West in, in England, they're from Pakistan or Bangladesh. In France, they're from the Maghreb. In Belgium, they're from the Maghreb. From the United States, they tend to be uh, Somalis, so um, disproportionately. So that reflects a, a failure of assimilation. Uh, when you look at the Arab world outside of Iraq and Syria, um, 
the largest contributor is Tunisia's Dr. Anthony said, and I think that reflects the failure of government. And uh, I think the problem, what makes Tunisia uniquely vulnerable, the, the number two is Saudi Arabia. Um, that may just reflect the relative size of the population as well as the vestigial policies from the 80s and 90s, basically stemming from the siege of Mecca, which um, the Saudi government, quite frankly, and we didn't really wake up to until 9-11, the Saudis woke up to in 2004, as Colonel um, But in Tunisia, you had um, you know, revolutionary rule that failed to deliver a better life. So then you had a successful Arab Spring, and you had moderate Islam under Sheikh Rashid Yanush, um, which did not get involved in government. Everything has been tried. Everybody says that you know the the Western model. All these things have been tried in Tunisia, and life does not get better. And so, uh, as Colonel Dehoux said, it's not really a military problem. It's a failure of governance. And as long as you have poor governance. Um, you will have people who rebel violently against it, whether they call themselves um, Knights of Islam or communists or anarchists or the black hand. It's a universal reaction to a universal condition. And we have some in the audience who uh, could just as well be up here as, as well as in the audience uh, there. And I'm just going to highlight the name of, of one or two and ask if they would consider intervening. Um, Herman Franson, for example, um, has no peer, uh, or even someone who can match what he brings to the table on the implications for the economic and the commercial and the investment of the um, oil situation. And uh, questions pertaining to the oil price. Herman, if you might uh, come in there if you if you want to think about it a bit. Uh, I'll respect that. And also on Yemen, um, I did see one or two people from Yemen uh, here. If you wanted to um, uh, comment on aspects pertaining to Saudi Arabia and the campaign in Yemen, uh, you'd be uh, welcome uh, to do so. Uh, those two and. and David and uh, Ali Zandona and John Pratt and others who focus on the American corporate uh, interest in the kingdom. Uh, here's a chance too for the, um, the corporate aspects to be addressed to a greater degree than already has, has been done. Herman, do you want to make any comment on the energy thing and David? Uh, on the oil side, things have dramatically changed. You know, when uh, Kissinger in the mid-70s made an agreement with the Saudis, basically oil for peace, uh, we were a major importer of oil. Uh, then in 2008, when Obama was running for the election, it looked like we are going to import 20 million barrels a day of oil by 2020. Thanks to uh, technological revolution, I would say, we are now pretty much net self-sufficient in oil. And actually, now that the Saudi has more in common with Russia on the oil side than it has with us. And therefore, you see this budding relationship between the OPEC, the non-OPEC 11 led by Russia, and OPEC, and the warm relationship between the Saudi Ministry of Petroleum and the Russian Ministry of Petroleum, 
on cooperation on keeping oil prices within a reasonable level. At the same time, they're planning to import LNG from uh, Siberia. So that, that relationship is changing, and we are a relatively minor off-taker of oil. And in some ways, we are becoming a competitor. So that oil relationship has changed, and I don't know to what extent there will be more of the discussions next week. And related to the um, economic investment IPO uh, regarding Aramco, uh, Herman, I invite your comment on that. Ali Zandona, if you would care to, as a former oil industry person. And Maureen, maybe you want to uh, come in on any of the aspects pertaining to uh, the Saudi Aramco uh, IPO. Uh, is it likely to happen uh, this year? Uh, yeah, hearing about reports for 2019, and what's what's going to drive this, and what are the implications for investment in Giaf Nachmandi? If you feel comfortable coming in on this, on the public investment fund um, and other sovereign wealth fund related issues, uh, please find where, where and how. Because if you uh, do it on New York Stock Exchange, you run the risk of Americans being able to uh, uh, to sue uh, the uh, Aramco in, in case uh, uh, people want to take issues related to 9-11 to the court. Uh, there are also implications of transparency. Aramco would have to become transparent and make a lot of information available to uh, stock exchange that uh, it may not want to give. Same, some of the same issues exact uh, are in London. So that's why there have been discussions of uh, doing it in Saudi itself. The problem there is that the stock exchange is relatively small and there's not, not enough turnover. And twice, you know, on the Fridays and Saturdays, it doesn't operate. So there are some, some technical problems there aside from the size of it. So. Uh, I think it's still pretty much an open question. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, do you have Mandy or David? Do you want yes, to come in on this? Actually, as, as an addition to what Herman just mentioned, uh, I have concern about going to the, the local uh, market, but we have to keep in mind that Kuwaitis and Qataris and UAE nationals and so on can buy into that uh, stock market. So. Uh, but on the other side, I think uh, the two, $2 trillion, the estimated value of 5% of Aramco, is, 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 uh, is going to boost the, the, the economy, not of Saudi only, but the GCC. Last comment about the, the sovereign wealth fund in Saudi is doing very well, and they are accumulating enough wealth. And I think what is important there is that they have really very effective management of assets. So I am I am very optimistic about that. Thank you. Okay. David, did you want to add anything? On oil or on something else? This line of uh, thinking the oil price, yeah. the economic dynamics of this. No, I want to talk about the partner US Saudi partnerships. My my question is just David out of way. After the arrest of all these businessmen on corruption charges, 
I think one of the issues, and I'd love to hear what people think, nobody knows now what constitutes corruption or what are the rules of the game in partnerships between foreigners and Saudis and investment. And um, I think it's really important. The Saudis have to make public what constitutes corruption and what are the rules of the game in partnership investments. You know, the five percenters and the ten percenters and the false companies set up to uh, pay back the various Saudis in these partnerships. And I would, if anybody has any ideas here about what now constitutes corruption and what are the rules of the game in partnerships, I'd be delighted to hear. I, I would invite uh, Mike and maybe uh, Chris Koski uh, is. I think he has hooked up to the facilities there, but uh, Mike, if you'd like to um, take on any aspect of this. If one remembers when um, President Trump went for his May visit, there was talk about uh, $400 billion in terms of American infrastructural needs that would welcome and invite investments. Um, it doesn't necessarily turn on the corruption uh, question or even the definition of it, um, but it perhaps does invite the question of due process. And uh, those uh, that enjoyed the facilities at the Ritz-Carlton uh, uh, would understandably want to know where is the due process in this. And so, Mike, if you would like to take that on, or, uh, Anyone else? <laughs> All right. I'll do my it has to do with credibility. It has to do with faith. It has to do with confidence. Um, you can talk about uh, being open for business all you want, but if there's uncertainty in terms of the question that David Ottaway has asked, uh, are my investments going to be um, safe? Are they going to have to be with a Saudi Arabian partner and uh, might her or his? assets uh, be seized along with mine, uh, this would be dissuasive uh, for someone to put money into Saudi Arabia's economy uh, as an investor, uh, short of answering these uh, questions. I'll do my best. It's a tough question to answer. But um, just to go over the corruption aspect and not regarding the, is your, are your investments safe in Saudi Arabia? Is it, is business, is it safe to do business in Saudi Arabia in general? Uh, regarding the corruption and where the fantastic prison at the Ritz-Carlton, um, from what I've heard and from what, I, and from what people have told me is that the people, and some of you may be able to help me out with this, is that the members of the royal family, the private business owners that were placed into the Ritz-Carlton, and Mohammed, His Royal Highness Mohammed bin Salman, the, what we saw was that the people that whose assets were not seized and money was not seized, it was proven that there was no, they didn't participate in any corruption practices or any corrupt practices, but if you look at the owner of NBC, the, they, I believe it was 60% that the Saudi government seized from it, so, uh, I see that as they found information or they found activities where there were 
corrupt practices. His Excellency, um, the Minister of Economy and Planning, he's no longer there because of the, because he gave contracts to people in an illicit manner. But from because of that, or because of what the Crown Prince did, I, I've, and what we're hearing is that it is now it, Saudi Arabia is a safe place to do business as long as you abide by the laws and. I'm not familiar with the corruption law or the bankruptcy laws now, but we know that it is a safe place to do business. Your investments will be safe, and with regards to the going using the Aramco IPO as an example, and that being listed on the Tottable, that is a I believe a very transparent outlook of where you will be able to witness and invest your money into a secure into a secure market right now. John Pratt, do you want to comment on this as a former head of all of our American business uh, people in the kingdom? Only, yeah. with a, only with a caveat that I left four years ago, but I, only with a caveat that I left four years ago, I, I agree that the anti-corruption issues are significant. I, mean, I think that looking at uh, the people that were, one of one question is, well, who should I partner up with if I'm going to go into Saudi Arabia? So then you wonder if it's a due diligence process, how do I vet that, um, and what are the rules of the game, as you mentioned. I think generally corruption is, you know, it's the old story. If it looks like it, it, it probably is. The question's getting caught. Um, now there's a day of reckoning. I think there's a message going out on this issue that basically, look, you know, the old ways of doing business are over with. Um, and we're moving forward from here. How is done, methodology issues, and all that stuff, I think probably you could take issue with, but certainly the effect is that the message is, you know, the future will not be like the past. Number one, and on the Saudi Ramco IPO issue, I, I can tell you, I haven't been out there many times since I left, as recently as three weeks ago, everybody at Aramco is geared up to go forward with this. I mean, there are systems in place to challenge, you know, um, basically do compliance issues with regard to international finance and accounting practices. And the entire, there's a whole business systems integration project, three or 400 people working on that to ensure that there is a compliance process. And, um, and there's a new department in the law department that talks about compliance. But the issue is sensitivity with regard to where these shares are going to be placed. And I think the other question is, you know, what does it really mean, 5% of our income? Subsurface rights, but the surface operations. I mean, it's a definitional issue now as to what encompasses Saudi Aramco uh, with regard to the IPO offering. And I think we're still too early. I'm probably one of the reasons they kicked it down the road until next year because we're just not ready. And those of you in the back uh, here. But the overriding okay. issues are basically it's a political process. Saudi Aramco's IPO is a strategic element in defining and developing. Establishing closer working relationships with a country where the IPO shares and where the IPO is going to be offered. I think you're going to watch this contest here next week. I think President Trump has made very clear that he wants New York to be the locus of that offering. Uh, there are risks, as Herman has pointed out, with regard to you know, uh, shareholder suits. Well, he was one to bring the house down, and then you've got Jazz in the background. So, it's, it's something that I think is, is still a work in progress. I don't think there's consensus within uh, the decision-making process as to where it should be going. 
Okay, David DeRose yeah, wants I mean, to come in on this. Too. I just wanted to make, there has been talk about the Chinese buying 5% outright, and I think that would be disastrous. That would be something that you should be very, very cautious and careful about. Um, so that's all here. David? I, I would just like to point out that in the defense realm, um, this new focus against corruption uh, is a U.S. competitive advantage. Uh, in the past, the United States had been operating uh, at a disadvantage against countries such as Britain, which suppressed a serious fraud office investigation into the El Yamana deal. So what you basically saw there was government complacency in enhancing corruption. Um, when you look at the United States major weapons sales, first off you have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which applies to everything, but then the foreign military sales system, which is extremely transparent. And I think that when you look at the conclusion of the 2011 F-15 sale, which was $60 billion, the largest case ever, um, when that case was offered, it had an expiration date. The Saudis did not sign it until after the expiration date. Um, so Boeing actually built those aircraft on spec, uh, and what you saw was um, the late defense minister, who uh, in his economist obituary, I think the fourth word was corrupt, um, uh, was basically outmaneuvered by um, the king, who was determined that he did not have a replay of El Yamana. And it is notable, if you look at the um, diplomatic register for Washington at the time, that right in the middle of these intense negotiations for the largest American foreign weapons sales package ever, the Saudi military attaché was abruptly replaced and his position was left vacant for some time in the middle of that. And so I think, just as Colonel DeHook said, that a lot of these reforms predate the ascent of King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman, who nobody knew of before that, uh, except for you know true experts. Um, uh, this idea to minimize corruption um, in the defense realm pre-exists the current king, and the United States actually you know, goes from the position where we were complaining about how the French could deduct the cost of bribes on the national income taxes to having a competitive advantage. Uh, yes, the, the euphemistic phrase is that the French and some others have a more competitive marketing uh, strategy. Uh, than uh, the United States is uh, permitted to have for legal reasons. Um, uh, Fahad, did you want to add anything to that? And then I wanted to ask about Yemen. Uh, much of the talk is about allowing humanitarian assistance to uh, enter the country. Uh, but what is not highlighted is that those who control, if not the ports, then the areas from the ports to the people in need uh, have a record of seizing the humanitarian aid and using it to reward their own, on the Houthi side especially, or to recruit uh, new people to the Houthi side, which uh, compounds the issue and has its own set of implications. And uh, perhaps, uh, Colonel, I hope you might want to focus on that, but Fahad, your additional uh, comment. Yeah, I just wanted to make a general point to address David's uh, point about uh, transparency. I think transparency is one of the keys to the success of Vision 2030. Um, if you look at, for instance, if you look at the Kingdom's counterterrorism 
policies and strategies, those have become incredibly transparent in the sense that every uh, plot that is foiled is front page news, uh, pictures of people who are arrested, the, uh, the trials. Um, that same level of transparency is surely, the, you know, slowly but surely, uh, is also being implemented in the economic realm. So you had a budget that was announced with a fair amount of uh, detail. There are quarterly reports that are announced by various ministries. Some of the ministries are now essentially appearing in front of the Shura Council um, in what, what is the equivalent of a, of a congressional hearing explaining where their budget is going and various programs. Obviously, the, the vision overall, Russ uh, has set very specific goals that need to be achieved, and that's also out, out there in the public. It's readily accessible. Um, so, I, I, and in terms of the, the, the corruption, um, you know, the, the, uh, the cases with the Ritz, I mean, the, the Attorney General did issue a number of statements. Um, delving into a fair amount of detail as to, to the, the uh, suspected wrongdoing. There is also, they said exactly how many people are left, and how many people are being prosecuted. And I fully anticipate that going forward, there'll be more and more information available to, um, to address this level of lack of transparency. I mean, if nothing else, I mean, in the past, you've heard from foreign investors and frankly, Saudis, businessmen and women and others who complained about corruption in the past, and I think Prince Mohammed has come out um, uh, to his credit and had spoken about it very directly. And I, again, you see it uh, sometimes in dramatic fashion in some of these major products that, uh, projects that didn't pan out. Um, I've cited the uh, you know, flooding in Jeddah, for instance, which is where I, my hometown where you know, essentially the same problems happen over and over again, and I think this is what uh, you know, King Salman and Prince, Prince Mohammed bin Salman are seeking to address. Um, they don't want to see the same uh, problems occur over and over again, and if they do, then people will be held accountable. Thank you, Fahad. Now, in, fa in fairness to the Yemen one, and I'm going to ask uh, Colonel Kahuk if he would uh, focus on this aspect of the humanitarian aid. Anyone in the, the back, I've, I've seen some from Yemen earlier on, who want to um, add a question uh, here's your chance. All right. And uh, Colonel Dahouk will take the one that is on the table about getting the humanitarian aid in through the ports and the uh, convoys that are controlled oftentimes by the uh, Halti uh, rebel uh, militias and the uh, de facto government in Sanaa. Uh, I think maybe a couple of weeks ago, the uh, uh, Saudi issued a, uh, or uh, issued yeah, the uh, Yemen humanitarian plan. It was a very complex, involved plan, multi-billion dollar plan, basically to pump in aid into Yemen. Um, and all this aid goes through, from Saudi Arabia, or maybe coalition, goes to the UN, to NGOs, and then that's the UN and the NGOs uh, 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 issues or to, to, to distribute some of this to the, to the Yemenis. So the Saudis are, are, seems like they're doing their best to provide aid to uh, make access to Yemen and not necessarily through uh, the, the seaports. They're really open to three of them, you know, Hadaida, Mokalla, uh, and also there are some land access and some of this humanitarian aid is coming from Saudi Arabia, from the Saudi Arabian uh, Yemen uh, borders. And that the aid source are multiple trucks 
that comes through Sada. This is Houthi territory. But once they cross, once they cross, they, uh, they cross borders and they land somewhere in, inside Yemen, especially inside the Houthi territories, the coalition has no control of it. And uh, you know, Saudis don't have anybody on the ground to disseminate uh, all these uh, things. But uh, all, all, uh, everybody rely, relies on the UN and the NGOs on the ground. And that's something unfortunate sometimes because the guys on the ground have the story. They're the ones that have the story. And that kind of links into the CIVCAS, all the civilian casualties or collateral damage that you, you see. You see um, Saudis really uh, do, do uh, make mistakes. They need to improve on their targeting and all that. Uh, but once you have an unfortunate event, uh, they're not telling their story. They're, somebody else is telling the story to them. And it's not a good image when, when that happens. Um, but there is a serious effort on, on, from, the, from the Saudi government and the coalition to combat the humanitarian uh, efforts to Yemen. And uh, it's, it's hard to, uh, to judge the outcome of it. It's hard to say, okay, here's how many families I just saved, here's how many families uh, were provided for this and that. It's very difficult. But the money is there, and the, and the aid is there, and it's, it's going in. Uh, and there's also talk, maybe it's, they open the Sinai, uh, Sinai, Sanaa Airport, so I'll send you something. Thank you. I'm going to ask um, uh, Fahad and maybe uh, Colonel LaRoche on this. Uh, I just returned in the last four days from uh, taking a U.S. Central Command delegation uh, to the region, and the, the interest in exploring the question of what is going to be practical, feasible, and necessary <coughs> to bring peace to Yemen, <clears throat> and can it be part of the uh, allegedly sought for May summit that uh, President Trump is considering having uh, with the six GCC countries' representatives. There is no um, guarantee that there will be such a summit, uh, short of either a resolution of the so-called Gulf crisis or um, a compromise there, uh, Right. So I just wanted to add to what Colonel Dahouk has said in terms of the, uh, the Saudi aid to Yemen. Um, according to various uh, calculations and estimates from, from various Saudi institutions, the total amount of aid that Saudi Arabia has provided to Yemen in the past three years exceeds $8 billion. And that's in the form of at least well over a billion dollars in support to the central bank, hundreds of millions of dollars in the form of uh, medical uh, equipment and food uh, supplies. There's also, uh, uh, I don't have the exact figures, but hundreds of thousands of Yemenis. They, technically, they're not considered refugees, but they're pe uh, people who have who live in Saudi Arabia and who have been living there have been unable to return to Yemen. Um, that. You know, they've basically been provided with um, with free free education and healthcare in Saudi Arabia as well. And so the total amount of aid inside uh, Yemen and outside uh, is well over eight billion dollars. Obviously, that there's a perception, as Colonel Dahouk has said, that um, the uh, Saudi Arabia is preventing aid. But um, you know, the Saudis have pretty uh, concrete figures showing the various programs. And and like the Colonel has said. This is in, in full cooperation with the, with the United Nations and with various humanitarian organizations on the ground. Um, the, the conflict overall is obviously very, very complex. Um, Yemen is unfortunately no stranger to, uh, 
to political violence and upheaval and has had a history of, uh, of civil wars. Um, as I've argued and others have argued in the past, the violence in Yemen began at least six months before Saudi Arabia received a formal request from the internationally recognized government of Yemen to intervene on its behalf. I think that the conflict will end when the same uh, parties that took up arms against this government lay down their arms and go back to the negotiating table. So um, I, I think that'll happen. That's the only way that this conflict uh, comes to an end, that, that the same parties that took up arms have to make a, a concerted effort and, and a decision to lay them down and go back to the negotiating table. Other than that, I think it will be, uh, it will be difficult to resolve in the, uh, the immediate future. In, in fairness, and to provide context, uh, <clears throat> Saudi Arabia is uh, regularly maligned for what it's doing in Yemen and what it's not doing in Yemen, what it's doing to Yemen and not to Yemen. Uh, but uh, some basic uh, facts here. Uh, prior to the uh, reunification of the country North and South uh, in May 1990, and even going on after that, uh, ponder the following, <clears throat> that the United States was a provider of economic assistance to Yemen. The Dutch, in a significant way, were. So were the Canadians, so were the Irish, so were the Japanese, so were the British, and so were both Germanys before the reunification of Germany, East Germany and West Germany, uh, and the World Bank and the IMF. But Saudi Arabia's contributions to financial uh, assistance in Yemen were greater than all of those combined. Greater than the World Bank, the IMF, the British, the Americans, both Germanys, the Dutch, the Canadians, the Irish, and the Japanese. Um, there's also a significant Saudi Arabian uh, community of people with uh, Yemeni national origins and backgrounds. Uh, not just in Jabhat, where there is a more uh, obvious concentration, but throughout the country uh, in general. Uh, so the aspect of Saudi Arabia and Yemen is far more complex than the media grabbing headlines of humanitarian assistance <coughs> and the UAE's role and the Southern Transitional Council uh, advocating for separating the countries again and other proposals to reformulate uh, Yemen into six different uh, provinces. Um, it's an extraordinary country, extraordinary people. Um, uh, they are in every state here of the United States. Some believe the man and the moon really is a Yemeni. Uh, they're the few places on the planet they've not immigrated to. Um, so we just touched the surface of some of the issues that will be discussed by the Crown Prince and this administration, and not just at the government-to-government -government level, but also in Houston, uh, San Francisco, uh, New York, uh, in addition to uh, Washington. Thank you all for coming, and remain, if you'd like, uh, to speak to some of the speakers here in a Saudi Ravens and Yemenis uh, who are here as interns. Thank you. Thank you.